the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. But don't talk about that obedience stuff, because if you do, it's legalism. And somehow obedience will undermine our faith relationship with God. As if somehow a call to obedience is antithetical with love and faith in the church. I mean, this is foreign to the New Testament. It is absolutely incompatible with Jesus' teaching. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Mike's message today is entitled, The Church of Thyatira and the Call to Purity. And we hope that you enjoy it. Remember, you can always find this message and many others online at reachingyourheart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko with the Church of Thyatira and the Call to Purity. It's hard to beat what Abraham Lincoln said about his mother. I mean, I've said it before, I'll repeat it because it's timeless. Our best president had the best compliment for his mother. He said, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. That's kind of neat, isn't it? And doesn't that make you feel good if your little boy at the age of 45 or 50 or 5, it doesn't matter how old he is, came up to you and he said, all that I am or hope to be, Mama, I owe to you, my angel mother. Wouldn't that carry you for a long time? Man, we can learn from Abraham Lincoln here. Now, it's no accident that the church of God in the Bible is likened to a mother. First, the heavenly congregation, and then the earthly counterpart that belongs to it is likened unto a mother. Turn to Galatians 4, 26. The Bible says, but Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Whatever church there is on earth, whatever we try to do here to become the church of Christ or to be the church that Christ has instituted. The fact is the true church is part of a heavenly family that refused to disobey God, part of a heavenly culture that is described as our mother above that said no to the devil long ago in a place far, far away from here. So Christ was right when he said, the one who does the will of my father, that person is my mother because Jerusalem above is our mother and she is free. Christ made it very clear that if we continue in sin willfully, that we are slaves to sin, and the Son has come to make us free. Jerusalem is our mother, and she is free. She cooperated with God the Father to give us Jesus. Her heart was broken to pieces at the cross of Calvary when that gift that she gave was poured out and broken for the human race. Jerusalem is our mother. Jerusalem above. The church on earth, friend, is an extension of that heavenly mother. 
and she is our mother. Second John 1, 1, in the general epistle for the church, the same author who wrote the book of Revelation here gives us a description of the church on earth. Second John 1, verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children following the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. The elect lady is the true church, and her children are those who are obedient to the truth. You know, I've been in churches, maybe you have, where they talk about, well, we need to have faith in Jesus, but don't talk about that obedience stuff, because if you do, it's legalism. You ever hear that? And somehow obedience will undermine our faith relationship with God. As if somehow a call to obedience is antithetical with love and faith in the church. I mean, this is foreign to the New Testament. It is absolutely incompatible with Jesus' teaching. In our study of the seven churches, we have embarked on a journey to discover the seven epic attitudes of the universal church from apostolic days to the end of time. And the seven churches we have discovered represents the universal church in John's day and the universal church from his day down the timeline to our day to the end of time. These seven churches represent seven epic church attitudes in which Jesus Christ calls his church to embrace him and to receive the counsel to shine in the world with that attitude that can illumine the world. The first church, the church of Ephesus, represents the church of the first century that lost its first love. It was good at fighting heresy, but it slipped into the attitude of apathy that compromised love. The second church, the church of Smyrna, represents the church of the late 3rd and early 4th centuries that was persecuted for its faith. For 10 days it suffered persecution, symbolizing the 10 years of the great persecution instigated by the emperor Diocletian. It started in 303 AD when they tried to shut down the Christian church to confiscate its manuscripts. They burned the church of Nicomedia, the ground, and other things like this. And people died for their faith, were imprisoned. And it ended in 313 AD in the Edict of Milan. That is when the Emperor Constantine granted religious freedom to the Christian world. So let's review. The first epic attitude represented by the church of Ephesus is a call to love. The second epic attitude represented by the church of Smyrna is the call to faith. And the third epic attitude represented by the church of Pergamum is the call to biblical obedience. Why? Because in the era of the church of Pergamum, which gave us the Bible, as we approach the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries, we find them compromising Bible truth. Love, faith, and obedience were essential to the early church's expansion and growth. Active attitudes that change a life, love, faith, and obedience, dear heart, matter to God. The fourth church is the church of Thyatira, and it represents a bad mother, a church corrupted by compromise. The concept of the church as a bad mother is introduced in the church of Thyatira. I mean, in the first century, you you read John's letter with me. It's very clear. He spoke about the elect lady and her children who followed the truth. So a corrupt mother is a church that no longer follows the truth, whose children have compromised the truth, and they have fallen away from Christ. It represents, in this context, the church of the medieval captivity, when the truth of the Bible was compromised, so much so 
that a new Jezebel took her stand to corrupt the church in the Christian era. The church of Thyatira here represents the call to purity. The call to purity. Friend, purity is an attitude of the heart that enables someone to make a difference for God. Let me ask you a question here. In the mess of our world culture today, do we want our children embracing an attitude of compromise where they do not need to be pure in their relationships with others? Is that what we want? Now, we want an attitude of love if they should mess up, right? Okay, let's face that. But we do not want to empower the mind and the will to make it okay to have a stance of impurity in the heart and the life. You see, purity is an attitude of the heart that enables someone to make a difference for God, to stand for God when the whole world around you is corrupt. In Matthew 5, 8, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if you have not been pure in heart, or if you have struggled with purity, this does not mean that you are not included here. Because if you fall on your knees, if you claim the cross of Christ, if you say, Lord, you know what I'm struggling with in my mind, you know what I've been going through with, I'm claiming the purity of Christ in my thoughts, God will accept that and he'll work with you. You are pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to have the attitude of purity inside the heart. The letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira is a call to purity. Revelation 2 verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now like the first three letters to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, This letter also begins with that portion of the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 that is needed to correct the problem and to give encouragement for this church of Thyatira to stand true. It is the specific picture of Jesus that the church of the Middle Ages needed to be sustained through a time of impurity. Here Jesus introduces himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now these two images convey two truths necessary to save the church of the Middle Ages from the effects of apostasy. I mean, we saw it in the church of Pergamos. There it was, compromised with Bible truth. We saw the apostolic love and faith dwindling as the Bible was surrendered for philosophy and theology and creedalism. But when we get to the church of Thyatira, it's a full-blown problem. We have just entered the terrible, horrific era of the crusades, of the compromise of truth, of the medieval captivity. So these two images convey the two truths that the medieval church needed. The first truth is the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, as evidenced by the fact that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Now in Revelation 1.13, Christ appears as the Son of Man. Now we know who that is. In Daniel 7.13 and 14, the Son of Man is the one who appears at the end of the age, at the end of the four great world empires after the Middle Ages, to receive his kingdom from his Father and to judge the world. But here, in the letter to the church of Thyatira, Jesus is not pictured as the Son of Man. He is called the Son of God. It took centuries for the early church to settle on the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If you ever read the book, The Jesus Wars, you get an idea of how political it got. I mean, they even had sports games in Constantinople where one side, the blues and the greens and so on, they'd fight and kill each other over the Trinity. I mean, it was an amazing struggle in the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Western Church never came to grips with it because they were focused more on Bible-believing Christianity, Christian love, and the like. 
And so for centuries, the church struggled over the person of Jesus, who he is in relationship to God. So it's no accident that we find right here, the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God. In the Trinitarian creeds, Jesus is affirmed as the Son of God, who is God. The Greek word translated here for flame only occurs four times in the Greek Old Testament. And three of these four times, it describes the fiery presence of God himself. So the word we have for fire here, describing the Son of God, is the word for fire in the Greek that describes God. Genesis fifteen seventeen, Genesis nineteen eighteen, Exodus three two. They share this same unique word. Now the first usage of this word in the Greek Old Testament, I think, is one we need to focus a little on here, because it reveals the presence of the Father and the Son as they share the fire of God's glory. When God made a covenant with Abraham that he would be with him in the future and his family. Turn with me to Genesis 15, 17. Let's look at this, this first instance of this word. Now Abraham has just divided some animals in two. God at this point will make a covenant with him. And in that ancient culture, when you cut an animal in two, it was the custom to pass between the parts. And when you did so, you were saying that if you don't keep your end of the deal, maybe you'd be cut to pieces. That would be a compelling way to sign a contract, wouldn't it? Imagine going to buy a car. Instead of putting your name on the line, they go out and they cut an animal in half and they put it there and they say, you walk between the pieces. If you don't pay for this car, we're going to cut you into pieces in the parking lot here. How many of you be inclined to go ahead and you know, pay for that automobile and honor the contract regularly if that was the motive there in the contract? Well, that's what we have here. God himself will pass between the pieces of the bullock to say, if I do not keep the covenant with you, may I be cut in half. And we know that's exactly what happens, even though he did keep the covenant. Christ was cut off according to the book of Daniel. He was cut off for our sins and transgressions. Look at Genesis fifteen seventeen. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now look at that verse with me. Do we have one thing passing between the pieces or two? All right, the first one, that's right, two. The first one is a smoking fire pot, and the second one is a flaming torch. In the Greek language, it says a flaming lamp. So we have a fire pot and a lamp. Together, they pass through the pieces. And the Bible is clear in the context. In that day, God made a covenant with Abraham. In the Greek Old Testament, it says a fire came. It is the same Greek word we have here, right there in the church of Thyatira. It's the word flocks. In this verse, the fire pot is God the Father because he's the source of the fire. And the flaming torch, or more literally in the Greek, the lamp is the Son of God. God the Father and his lamp, Jesus Christ, were present when that covenant was made with Abraham. And together they passed between the pieces because they made the oath that they'd be cut in pieces if that's what it took to keep the deal. You remember in Genesis 22 when God called Abraham, he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, together you go up that mountain, you offer him up as a burnt offering. God the Father and God the Son journey between the bullock to make the promise that would be fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. And Abraham's test was a foretaste of God's test, what God would endure. In Isaiah ten seventeen, Isaiah describes God the Father as the light of Israel and his Holy One as a flame. 
And the fire that comes from both God, who is the light of Israel, and his Holy One, who is the flame, will destroy evil in the end. Look at Isaiah ten seventeen. The light of Israel will become a fire and his Holy One a flame. And it, it could be translated, he will burn and devour his thorns and briars in a single day. We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in today's Reaching Your Heart. I mean, there's no idea of an eternal hell here, is there? A decisive glow of fire from the presence of God and evil is no more. In verse 18, Isaiah says, This holy fire from God will destroy both soul and body in a single day. Now, Christ just happens to quote this verse in Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now let's just look at that verse. Based on that verse, is hell a place where you can live forever? Yes or no? If you look at that verse, isn't it absolutely clear that hell is not a place you can live forever and ever? It says in hell he will destroy what? Both soul and body. There is no such thing as eternal life for a soul in the fire. Now, the medieval church developed the false notion that hell is an eternal torture pit, and people never die in a place called hell. Eternal life they offered in a place called hell, Dante's Inferno. Friend, it is incompatible with the most basic verse in our New Testament, the great promise given in John 3.16. And let's just say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, everlasting life is what you get when you have Jesus by faith. Perishing is what you have if you don't. And perishing is the opposite of everlasting life. I mean, you can't have everlasting life in hell and this verse be true. And so people have misunderstood some difficult verses in the book of Revelation by not looking at the whole Bible context, and thus they have made God out to be an eternal torturer instead of one who banishes the darkness with the light of his glory. Hebrews 12, 29 says that our God is a consuming fire, and his holy one, based on Isaiah 10, 17, is Jesus. And Christ in the church of Thyatira here, he has eyes like fire. And Christ himself in the context will one day destroy evil. John 5, 22, Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me by the Father. Which means he will deal with evil. The first truth is the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Friend, I mean, what is he to you? Is Christ just someone with some good advice? Is he just someone who can offer you some intellectual thoughts to make you feel smart? Or is he more than this? Is he the son of God as evidenced by the fact that he has eyes like a flame of fire that will one day destroy evil? You know, Christ can look right down into you. He sees every flaw. He sees every attitude. He sees every attempt to cover up and look good when you know you're rotten in the core in that area or this. 
And friend, if Christ can see you with eyes of fire, let those eyes of fire bore right into the dark places of your heart and make them glow with the light of his love. Let him change you. You know, the second truth from the vision of Jesus in verse 18 is the truth that Jesus has feet like burnished bronze. Now, bronze was the metal used for furniture in the outer court. I mean, the outer court, you had a bronze altar, you had a bronze laver for foot washing. On the inside, you had gold. And so bronze represented the earth, the outer court. Now, the Greek word used here for burnished bronze only occurs two places in the New Testament. Right here in Revelation 2.18, the letter of the church of Thyatira. And also in the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1.15. That's it. In Revelation 1.15, it indicates that the bronze here mentioned was burnished in the context of fire. That it is bronze that has been somehow interacting with fire. Look at Revelation 1.15. It says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, two allusions are probably in mind with this figure of bronze and fire. The first is the fiery furnace of Daniel 3. And you know the story. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar built this image all of gold, 60 by 6 cubits. And in Revelation 13, at the end of time, there's an image to the beast, 666. I mean, this story is a prototype of what happens at the world at the end of time. And he makes all the treasurers, all the economists, all the great men of his kingdom come and bow down at that image or their toast, literally. He says, if you don't worship the image, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel, stand up and they say, we're not bowing down to your image. And we're not careful to do what you want us to do. We're going to be true to God no matter what it means. He tries to convince them and it doesn't work. They play music to get them into the musical rhythm of compromise. That doesn't work. So finally, they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, the men who throw them in are burned alive. I mean, they're just scorched to death. But as he draws near to that door, unconsumed by the fire, because he's enamored with something he has never seen before, he sees three men walking in the midst of the fire. And then he sees a fourth man drawn to the door, drawn to him. He's unconsumed, as his comrades were. He says, this looks like one who is the son of God. Christ is the hero that was in the fiery furnace. Friend, Christ is the one who can find you and who can keep you in any furnace of life. Now, the other is a sanctuary image where fire and bronze meet at the altar of sacrifice in the outer court. There we find bronze and there we find fire. It's on the altar of sacrifice. The sacrifice was consumed on the bronze altar in the outer court. Christ is here pictured as the one whose feet took him to walk to the altar of sacrifice to die for our sins. And his character is forever defined as burnished bronze because he has perfect character because of his cross-centered decision to die for us. And because Christ endured the fire of the cross and the fire of the hell that you deserve in the Garden of Gethsemane to save you from the consequences of your own inner sin. He has perfect character. He has burnished bronze like bronze in a fire. Friend, the church of the Middle Ages taught that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient to just happen once. I mean, they diminished the cross of Christ. And whenever I hear a Bible teacher or preacher 
diminishing the victory of Jesus on the cross of Christ, I know that in some way they belong to that medieval problem. You see, they were insecure with the victory of the cross of Christ. It didn't really change who they were. They taught it had to be repeated over and over again in the Mass. They taught that it accomplished really nothing. That what happens after the cross is what matters the most. And in contrast to this false teaching, Jesus here appears as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze in a fire because he is the one who went to the altar for all of us. He offered himself up to God as a perfect sacrifice. And when he was done, he said, it is finished. And God was satisfied with the offering. Friend, you cannot repeat what God did for you there. You cannot improve on what Jesus has done for you. If you want to change life, if you want the fire of the altar to come to you as it did in Isaiah and to take your uncleanness from you, you must cling to that cross as the basis of your life. If there is no cling to the cross, you don't live. Hebrews 10.10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And then the writer of Hebrews says, once and for all. I mean, there is finished business there. That is that work of God that can complete and hold you and sanctify you for all time. Revelation 1.5 says the same thing in a little different words. It says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us. I mean, let it soak in. To him who what? What does it say there? To him who loves us. Thanks for listening today to the first portion of the Church of Thyatira and the call to purity. It was today's Reaching Your Heart. We'll conclude this broadcast the next time we get together. And thank you for listening today. Don't forget you can listen to this message again at reachingyourheart.com. And if you would like to attend in person at the church, we would love for you to do that. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland. 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. Reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website. Reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening, and we do pray that God is reaching your heart.